A million great ideas die instantly every day because they lack a plan or funding or you name it. We need more conversations about the soul inside the idea. The wind blows warm at a quarter to five. The sky's still dark but my mind's alive. You lay beside me dreaming of the sea. At least that's what it looks like to me. I'm Mark Ackler. At this stage in my life and career, the guiding principles I use are joyful innovation, building community, and teaching and practicing empathy. Welcome to The Real Work, presented by UBS, a show that gets to the heart and soul of building the pathways to making something, well, real. The voices you'll hear here are humble and honest, self-critical and strong. Like Suzanne Muchin, a Charter Corps member of Teach for America, co-founder of Bonfire for Women, and marathon runner, Suzanne is feeding the rising generation of women in the workplace. If you're going into a room and what you believe your job is, is to get everyone's head to nod with you in agreement with what you're saying, then what you're saying doesn't matter enough. In this episode, life hacks and how to construct a life in business with social impact. I'm Mark Ackler. Let's get to the real work. Mark. I miss you. How are you doing? I'm good. As always, I'm drinking something special, which I always do. Uh Uh-oh. I'm very well known for my weird drinks. Did you know that? I did not know that. It's a thing for me. Okay. The weird drink I'm drinking today, plant-based coconut electrolytes with three grams of MCT oil. I'm typically drinking something that has adaptogens in it. Okay. So wait, you got to, what is MCT oil? Um, Right. So this is stuff that's like very good for your body. It helps slow down the absorption of things like caffeine. It's really good for your metabolism. It's good for your heart health. So I have a bunch of, wait, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, of course. It's just us. Really? Okay, because I've got a bunch of weird shit in my fridge right here. <laughs> and so I can pull out anything you want, but like prebiotics, probiotics, like... Does it help? Do you notice a difference? Well, I guess so. I mean, look, the world of entrepreneurship is not exactly a gut-healthy career. <laughs> so to speak. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, relies on your gut, but you got to keep your gut healthy. So yeah, I think, I think, it's, I think it helps. Who knows? I'm still here. I'm still ticking. Just for our listeners, let's just start with a little bit of background. You and I, we have been friends and compatriots for a long time. So long. Yeah. 20 years. At least, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background and your history. I would say, because I don't think it's any fun to start at the beginning, I would say that I have been questioning one thing most of my life. Ooh, what? Which is, why aren't people paying more attention to ideas that are interesting to me? And I'm not just talking about do-gooder stuff, although maybe that's what I've gotten known for. That's a piece of it. Right. But I'm always over here going, but that thing over there just seems to be making people's world a little better or more beautiful, or more equitable. So why aren't we 
over there paying attention to that. And so I think I've spent a lot of time in my life trying to figure out how do we make those things cool? Yeah. Because I understand that people like to pay attention to things that are fun and cool and sexy. So why can't we make the ideas that are really changing the world more interesting to more people? That's what I've spent most of my life doing. And that's taken a lot of forms. So Don Quixote, uh, tilting at the windmills, how's it going? Well, I would say that, you know, you don't win them all. But I would say, look, I've I've built a lot of things, right? So I spent a good part of my career at Teach for America trying to make teaching cool. I remember that in the earliest days of Teach for America, after I had already gone into the classroom in the South Bronx, I became a recruiter on the campuses in the Midwest. And one of the things that made me the most proud during that era of my career was when I would go and we'd have these meetings, like information sessions on big college campuses, right? Like Madison and University of Michigan, whatever. And they would fill the rooms with like hundreds and hundreds of students. And you would think, wait, they are all here because they want to be teachers? Like mind blown, right? And yet somehow Teach for America had made becoming a teacher cool, like a career that was actually viable for people who would have never otherwise considered it. No question about it. And you weren't just anybody. Like you were one of employee, what, number three, four? Like you were right there at the very beginning. Right there in the Charter Corps, teaching in the South Bronx, joined the staff right after that, became the national program director. So I've spent a lot of my time trying to take ideas like that. Like you and I were, you know, very early on in the, even the building of the entrepreneurship space in Chicago, building 1871, building M-Hub, building Matter, trying to make things that other people might not have thought would win and turned them into spaces and places and ideas that people could get really excited about. And also, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of building community. It's, you know, we're not just alone. It takes a village. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of what you have done in, in your career is also doing it together with others in, in, in building community. Oh, yeah. Building communities and also building unusual alliances. You know, trying to bring people together around an idea who aren't the usual suspects is something I really pride myself in. And, you know, I've done a lot of this with the same business partner over many, many years, Rachel Bellow. We've built a lot of businesses and companies together. But the other thing is I've played on a lot of sides of this table. So I've also invested in companies. I've served on boards. I've been the entrepreneur. And I think that gives you a particular kind of appreciation for how freaking hard it is to start something new. And I heard this great quote by Seth Godin recently. So Seth said, every leader is an imposter. Okay. And here's why I love that. The first time you put something out there that hasn't been done, of course you're an imposter, right? I mean, it hasn't been done before. 
So anytime you set out to do something new, you're going to have to feel that way for a while. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. And, and, and untested. People are shooting arrows. People assume you're going to fail. And, and Yes. You know, we talk about leadership. There's mediocre and there's good and there's great leaders. And then there's courageous leaders, leaders who are willing to put themselves out there. Yes. But even more than courageous leaders, there's inspirational leaders. There's people who empower others. And one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is not only are you courageous and you're willing to take principled stands for things that you believe in, but you're also inspirational. You also empower others and you're a role model for others. Talk a little bit about that, if you would. I hope that is true. I keep a lot of the letters and emails that I get from students, for example, at Kellogg, who do say things like that. Because in the moment when you're teaching, and I'm I'm just myself, right? I don't feel like I'm standing for anyone or trying to be a symbol of anything. I'm just being myself in the classroom. It's hard to appreciate the impact you're having by just being, in in my case in particular, for many of them, the first female they've had who walks and talks and presents themselves the way I do in a classroom, who feels to them, I think the unusual part of it is that I show up exactly how I am in real time, I speak truth to power. I don't apologize for it. I don't ask to be liked. You know, you you sail, right? I, I I have sailed many times, and and you know, a camp counselor. And- so you know that the slowest position in sailing is when you're in a run, which means the wind is directly behind you. Sure. Because remember, the parachute acts, right? It has to catch the wind. And if the wind is behind you, you go slow. And so the metaphor for me is if you're going with the flow, if you're just going with the status quo, you're really not making much of a difference, right? And so the fastest way to sail is to cross cut. The fastest way to sail is in a beam reach, right? You turn, you cross cut, you pull the sail back and really tight, and then you freaking run. And I think that sharp pull of the sail, the snap of that sail can make some people really snap to attention in my classroom. (laughs) And some people are like, well, hell yeah, let's ride. (laughs) And other people are like, oh my God, get me off this boat, right? And so I think that for the people who stay with me on the ride, that by the time we're at the end, they see themselves differently. Of course. It's like the hero's journey. Like Craig and I actually, my my partner in teaching, have actually structured our class along the traditional hero's journey so that by the end, you feel like a goddamn hero. Yeah. I remember you coming into my classroom and I just sort of sat back and went, wow. And, and in fact, I quote you all the time. In fact, I quoted you today. I, I was I was with um, one of my former students who now works at Google, and we were talking about she has to create a brand, a new brand for a new service at Google. And I said, 
you know, what you say no to is every bit as important as what you say yes. And like simply, and I was quoting you and I gave you props. It was like, oh, I do that all the time. Thank you. You can't, but isn't it true though, and, and this is so true with, with our students, with our customers, with our investors, with our, you simply can't go through life expecting to be cutting down the middle. You just can't slice it that way. And if you're trying to do something important, and I actually think this is the most important thing that I say to students or, or entrepreneurs, is that if you're going into a room and what you believe your job is, is to get everyone's head to nod with you in agreement with what you're saying, then what you're saying doesn't matter enough. You don't matter enough. And, and when you really get that into your soul, Mark, like when that drops deep down and, and you admit to yourself that most of your day you spend trying to get people's heads nodding and you realize how ineffective that is, and what it's going to take for you to withstand yeah. the nose. That is another way of living. I couldn't agree more. But so tell me, like, you have sort of the, the mundane way of saying this is you have a chip on your shoulder. But, but the deeper, more nuanced way of saying this is you have such a deep passion. You are so motivated. Like what drives you? Like, like why? Why? Why torture <laughs> yourself? Yeah. <laughs> right. What, what is it about you that's so important that you feel like, like you have a personal responsibility to make this change? That's a, such a good question, Mark. You know, it, it was interesting because when I started, so my, the current company at, that I I'm running right now is called Bonfire. When I, was talking to your partner, Troy, about it. And I said, for me, this really is my last company. I mean, it, it honestly is, right? Like age-wise and energy-wise and everything. And I said, so this is go big or go home. And I do not go home. <laughs> right? Like, I don't know how to go home. Right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right. So why is that? Why is it that I don't go home? It's just not an option for me. Yeah. Why? And I think it's because of the following. I, like you, Mark, have a really great life, meaning I have a family. I have children. I'm now a grandmother. Yay. I've got a dog. I've got people. Like, I've got a life, you know? Like, I have things that I'm fulfilled by. So in order to do what we do as entrepreneurs, to start something new that you know is going to take everything you've got to build and scale and return money to investors. And then some, right? You have to want to do it so badly that you are unstoppable. And that in fact, you can't not do the thing. If somebody told you, well, do you really have to launch Bonfire? I would look at them like, what do you mean? Of course I have to start Bonfire. 
Right. It's a, it's a moral imperative. Yes. Right. And it's not just mission-driven, like, oh, I'm, I'm doing it because I want to help the world. No. I always say that the three questions you have to ask yourself, and I would ask myself these questions, and I would ask these questions if I were investing. Why you? Why this? Why now? And so for Bonfire, why me? Why this company for women? Why now? Is so fucking obvious. Yeah. The workplace doesn't work for women, and it hasn't for a very long time. And I don't see anyone stepping up to change it for your daughters or mine, not in the way that I think is going to create a solve for work, not for women, for work. I'm not just doing this for women. I'm not Sheryl Sandberg trying to tell women to lean in. I'm trying to change how work works. And if you want to do that, you better really want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So so for our listeners who are not familiar with Bonfire, what is Bonfire? So Bonfire is a talent development accelerator for the rising generation of women in the workforce. So women who've been let's call it eight to 15 years out. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about the way Bonfire accelerates women is that we face the employer. We ask the employer to pay for their women to spend time with us six months Mm -hmm. in a program that is digital. It's online. It's part synchronous. It's part asynchronous. Mm -hmm. And They spend time in our curriculum, which is owned by us, developed by us. It revolves around monthly, what we call all rise trainings. And they pay and we spend time with the managers as well as with the employees. And we are driven to have not just the women, but the companies adhere to the bonfire way of thinking about work. So it's a radiating impact. We don't just go after the women one by one. We go after the companies. Mm -hmm. And the short story that I will tell here, which is not a fun one, like it's so interesting when people tell a failure story, Mark, because it's like, right? Like there's, there's a lot of failure stories and then people always feel like they have to end them by saying, and then... I swooped in and, right, (laughs) Right. saved the world and everything turned out great, right? Like, then that's not a failure story. Sometimes things just suck. Hey, listen, we have a lot of scar tissue. If, you know, if you're going to be in the arena, as the TR used to say. Man in the arena. The man in the arena. Got to be the man in the arena or the woman in the arena. So here's what I will say. We launched this talent development accelerator called Bonfire so that it launched in January of 2020. Hmm, January of 2020. Hmm, let us take us back. Yeah. As an in-person offering. Right. You were there. Yes, I was. Our open house was the end of the world, March 10th. There is nothing fun. I have nothing good to tell you about... You know, there's nothing good to say. Like, what can I say about that? Yeah, but you, you know, you know, we 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 talk about pivoting, but really, the way I think about it is, 
persistence without empathy is kind of like a mental illness, right? And so you had the persistence, but you also had the empathy of really truly understanding your customer because that allowed you to to morph and change. It did. I, I will tell you that there was a certain maturity that I did have that I, I don't think I would have had in my 30s or my 20s because I would have been scared. If I had been in my 30s or my 20s and I had raised a $2 million seed round, which is what I had done, I would have been scared because I would have felt like I had something to prove. But I didn't. Like, to be honest, I was 53 and I had been there and done that. And honestly, if I had gone down, no pun intended, in flames in March, what would people have said? Like, so sorry, that must be horrible, right? So out of that clarity of... I don't have anything to prove to anyone. What I do have, to your point, Mark, exactly, is a drive to figure out how not to let our companies down, our women down, and this potentially very beautiful solution disappear. Out of that comes a kind of very narrow lane so narrow, so thin that you just keep pushing down it. And I'll tell you the bad thing that happens when you go down that place is your nervous system does not respond. Meaning there's something that I've come to really pay attention to, which is somatic, your body's somatic response to stress, really paying attention, right? When I'm under stress, where do I feel it? In my gut, in my shoulders. But during that time, Mark, I felt nothing. I was like a machine. I was like a robot, you know? Yes. It wasn't good though, right? Like there were parts of it that like, if you're my investor, you're probably going, yes, (laughs) right? But if you're like my family, you're like going like, uh, yeah, not healthy, right? Of course. But here's what I will say in the end. In January of 2020, we had 75 women, 16 companies, one city, one office. Today, we've put over 3,500 women through the program, Yes, 150 customers. We are global. We did $4 million in revenue last year. All right. We're EBITDA positive. We have 90% customer retention. We have 75% margins. And we're raising around. And I say all that in a backwards looking way, like, oh, bro, we did this, we did that. So cool. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> not a day goes by. I understand. Where I'm not sweating it out. My conversation with Suzanne Muchin continues in a minute. I'm really proud to partner with UBS again. This time on the Real Work Podcast. It's a rich relationship that began with sharing the story of the book I co-wrote with Merita Sherry called Exit Right. In writing the book, we wanted to help entrepreneurs to be more intentional about their legacy, especially when it comes to selling their business. Exit Right teaches where deals get into trouble 
how to create alignment between negotiating parties, and what terms of a deal you should care about most. As a leading global wealth manager, UBS knows how to work with entrepreneurs and business owners at all stages of their journey and legacy. Their purpose statement is reimagining the power of investing, connecting people for a better world. That gets to the heart of what drives me every day. Empathy matters. Let's face it, starting and growing a business is hard. It's why UBS reminds their clients to begin with the end in mind. To learn more and find an advisor near you, go to UBS.com slash business services. UBS.com slash business services. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS Group AG, member FINRA SIPC. You know, in our world, we hear a lot about product market fit and how important product is. And of course, and the way I think about it is product is table stakes. Like you have to have a great product and simple. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in simplicity. And But but it's it's not the end game. So, you, you know, the way I think about it is I'm calling it PBC, product, business model, customer acquisition. So you've got all three, and not, it's not perfect, obviously, and you're still working it out, but now you've got all three elements in line, ready to scale. We, we do, and there, but here's two more tricky elements. I'm going to go to two tricky places. Okay. Number one, we're doing a CEO change, okay? We're bringing in a new CEO. I was never meant to be the full-time CEO indefinitely when we launched Bonfire. Yep. It's not who I am, right? And it's not just because I'm full-time at Kellogg, technically. It's really because it's not mine to do. I'm the founder and founding CEO who gets to the place you just said, P. B, what was the third one? C, customer acquisition. Thank you. I get to PBC. That's my gift. It's my genius. Yes. I am not the growth stage CEO. It's just not my gift. And by the way, let me admit something in front of the hundreds of thousands of people who be listening to this. <laughs> yeah, us and my family and right, yeah. Okay, can I yeah. just admit something? Sure. I'm not a great CEO. I'm, I'm, it's, not, it's not my genius. But, but you're self-aware. Right. I'm a great leader. I'm not a great operating CEO. I'm not Amanda. I'm not Maria. I'm not a great operating CEO. So we are now bringing in through an acquisition, a company called Great on the Job. Do you know, you know, Jody, do you know Jody Glickman? I don't know her personally, but I know, I know of her. So this round allows us to acquire that company and in doing so, bring her on as CEO. And the gift of this is that the thing Bonfire needs the most right now is new content. And we get that with Great on the Job. And so the first piece of that is self-awareness of who you are and what you're good at and where the company is and what the company needs. And the other piece of that is ego. So we have, you and I both, we have Big ego, small ego. And let me like, we have big ego because we believe in ourselves and we're confident human beings. 
But we have small ego in the sense that, look, at the end of the day, the right thing to do for the the company, for the people we serve, you know, I'm a big believer in servant leadership and I think you are too. And right, it's like- Oh, yes. Yes. How do we serve more people? And Mark, I believe in team. Like if I'm an investor, I need to see a team. No one single individual is ever a charismatic enough leader to save a company, build a company, win, sell. It it has to be a gorgeous team, an elegant team of grownups. That's what we've got. And, And I'll stay on as executive chair, and so will Rachel, but we have this gorgeous team. And if I've learned anything over this last iteration of being an entrepreneur, is that it's not that it's a flat model because everybody has to be accountable for something, but that the CEO role is just a role. It's just a function. And people over-obsess about it. It's like people, and when I say people, I mean sometimes investors. And it's like, No, the CEO is like a quarterback. The CEO is the team leader, but you've got to have a team. So, so, you know, my co-author of the book, Exit Right, is is Merit Sherry. I know you know Merit. He likes to say what he learned through his entrepreneurial journey is that the chief entrepreneurial officer is very different than the chief executive officer. And and like those roles are completely, completely different. different. Oh my God. That's so great. I wish I could have that title. <laughs> right. I, I should have that title. So that's one thing. But here's the second thing that, that we learned that was really important for the hundreds of thousands of people listening. It really does matter that you understand your total addressable market in such a realistic way, because you know how you and I both hate, and I'm sure everyone does, when you're like, we have a billion, you know, people in our market, and if we just capture 1% of it, right? Like, oh, no, you don't, (laughs) right? Like, please don't go there, right? So if you really, though, do understand your TAM, and, and, and within that TAM, you and I would both do this, no, no, who's actually buying your product. Oh. Actually. Right. And, and who's the champion? Why are they the champion? What are their KPIs? Yeah. What do they right. care about? It's not about you. It's about them. How do you change the arc of their business? It's not about your business. Right. Once you get that super clear, now you can have real conversations. You, you know, the way I talk about it is I say, it's the poetry of spreadsheets. It's sort of an oxymoron. And when I say the entrepreneur says, I don't want to hear, you know, it's a $2 billion TAM. Here's what I want to hear. I want to hear who's your customer? How are you going to reach them? Why do they care? Where's their urgency? Why are they going to uh, trust a startup to solve the problem? You know, is it, why is the problem so urgent? That's a great question. Why, why are they going to trust a startup to solve their problem? It's a great question. And it's like, look, let's just build it from the bottom up. You know, today you have five customers. Here are the unit economics. In two years, we'll have a hundred. If you believe that we have a hundred, 
that we can get to a hundred customers in, I'm making this up obviously in, you know, two years, you should invest because it's a great business. And here's how we go from five customers to a hundred. And if you believe we can get from five to a hundred, you should invest. Like it's, it's that simple. Yeah. Right. That's the, like, let's build it from the ground up. Yeah. So look, this is what I, I will say, cause you're also catching me on a day when I'm kind of in a bad mood. Do I sound in a bad mood? No, but you know, it's funny you should say that. I was looking at you going, hmm, what's going on? Oh, really? Do I look sad? No, not sad, but I could tell there's like a little tightness, you know. Really? I, I know you well enough. Aw. Okay, well, I... It's okay. Like, what's... So, Bobby, what's going on? <laughs> no. Um, here, here's what so many people will admit if they're being so honest, right? Is that like... Fundraising sucks. Oh, fundraising sucks. And it's it just does. It's a necessary part of entrepreneurship. And it's not, I don't even say it's a necessary evil because not every business should fundraise, right? Not every company needs to do that. No. But it is a necessary tool in your toolbox for growth and scale. And at the right time with the right partners, it is absolutely the flip of the switch, right? But it is soul crushing. And not even because you have to get no's, that's just like part of the process. But the process, Mark, is so draining. It's just exhausting. I know. And, I, and I'm tired. Yeah, I'm sorry. I've raised a lot of money as an entrepreneur I've been on that side of the equation many times and I know, and, and right now in a down market, it, it's, uh, raising capital today is really, really difficult. It's really difficult. So one of the, one of the things I always tell all entrepreneurs is that the best place to raise money is from your customers. And, uh, there are some really interesting and creative ways to do that especially in challenging times. And so like, like venture capital, it's a terrible, it's a terrible model. Yeah. It, the, the venture capital model is a very terrible model and some of it is broken. And, and, and I will also say, and, and this is just a fact, by the way, and people should know this fact, although I'm not saying it by the way, in any way in defense, it's just a fact. You know how much venture capital money goes to women? I, I do. It's worth saying. So it's less than 3%. And the reason that that matters in a moment like this for me and for Bonfire is because you're facing almost always men on the other side of the table, because it's also true that only 8% of venture capital partners are women, right? Yep. And so it's a, it's a, difficult conversation to begin with made harder by product market fit issues. Yeah, no question. And, and look, we all, it's human nature. We gravitate to what we know and what we understand. For sure. It's, it's just basic human nature. Basic human nature. And you know, that if you don't have representation, you're not going to have a voice at the table. So enough complaining, because look, I, I really don't mean it to say like, boo-hoo-hoo, poor me. It's not that at all. 
I feel shocked in some ways that we are where we are and I am really in it, (laughs) but I'm tired. I understand. Thank you. And it's the journey that we all go through. I know. But, you know, going back to this concept of the poetry of spreadsheets, you know, if the unit economics equal one customer equals 10 women, I, I don't know what your, your, the model is, but, but right. And if you say today we have 150 customers and we're at 4 million in revenue. And if we got a thousand customer or 500 customers, we'd be here. And here's how we get from, you know, where we are today at 150 customers to, you know, two years from now we'll be at 500 and here's the methodology. Here's how we get yeah. it. Yes. And if you believe that we can do go from 150 to 500, and if you believe the unit economics are what they are, and, and we're even a pro, you know we're profitable, and this is how we scale, and here's how we can make venture returns, then you got to invest. Like like it's like right. You you yes. You'd think that that was a very logical conversation. Yeah. <laughs> what one, <laughs> one would think. One would think, yes. And and by the way, we are having some success. So I shouldn't, we have a term sheet. So I shouldn't say that like we're having success. So it's just a long process. But look, I will say this. I wouldn't trade my life as an entrepreneur for anything. And as a professor, I mean, because I consider even being a professor entrepreneurial, right? Like you and I, we write our own curriculum, we write our own content, we make our own hours, we run our own show, like every classroom is its own sort of adventure of test and learn. I wouldn't trade this way of life for anything. Here's the only thing I will say that I would go back and do differently. Not, I wouldn't have COVID, okay, enter the picture. But the idea that I spent so many of my core parenting years going into an office oh, yeah. boggles my mind. Right, when the alternative is this. But the technology didn't exist either. I mean- right, but just the hours I would have saved oh, as a human being are, are mind-boggling. Yeah, but there's a trade-off. So yes, of course. And there's also some social isolation. I don't know about you. I, but- I don't care, Mark. I don't like people. <laughs> I really don't. I'm very antisocial. You know that. I do. I do. I have very, very few friends. Well, I am honored that hopefully I'm one of those friends. You, Duh. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know my friends. Yeah. I'm, I really, I'm, I'm just, look at, I, and I say this with a little bit of tongue in cheek, but really I'm not good at being social. So Zoom is perfect. Yeah. You and I used to get in a lot of trouble with Rosie in our early days. We did. We right. Did. We, so for our listeners, we were in this leadership program, quote unquote leadership, because we were very immature. And so we were those people who would sit in the back of the lectures that were supposed to be very serious and just laugh our heads off like we were in eighth grade. It was terrible because we were supposed to be adults. It was horrible. Yeah, but it but it, it brought us joy. So much joy. That's a good question for you, though. Knowing like life is hard and it's particularly difficult now, but when you wake up in the morning, what, what makes you smile? So I'm going to get a little religious here. So in Judaism, there's a prayer in the morning, Modani, 
which is the Jewish prayer of gratitude. So I sing that every morning and it actually is the perfect amount of time as you make your bed, which I do also every morning. So I say the Mode Ani prayer because I think it is important to express gratitude the first thing when you wake up. Like Mode Ani is really like, like we're breathing, like we're alive. Yes. Better that than the alternative, right? So that's the first thing I do. Then if I'm anywhere where there's light, like if it's still light, and even in Chicago, I have beautiful windows, right? Like I open the the windows and I just am like, I actually find cityscape beautiful. So I try to express gratitude for like wherever I am, like I have light, I have something beautiful to look at. And then I do five minutes of meditation using an app called Simple Habit. Mm. And I alternate between Simple Habit and Insight Timer, which are both guided meditations. And usually I just do five minutes, but I've been doing this for about eight years now. And I just click on it and there's a bunch of different ones and it really centers me. So it's the very first thing I do. Um, I also read from, um, it's called The Book of Awakening and it's by Mark Nepo. And it is a daily book. So each day of the year of the calendar has a very short reading. And I will take some time to read that. This is this all is within the first like 20 minutes of waking up. Um, and then I'll, you know, get moving, get out of bed. I have my dog. I'll walk my dog. Um, and then I will do some yoga. This is, but this is this morning routine that is so important to me. By the way, you're the second person to wake up every morning saying that prayer. No way. Ask God. So oh my God. Who else? Peter Himmelman. What? Yeah. Peter Himmelman. It was also, I, we just had the interview with Peter. He wakes up every morning and he actually said the prayer on this, on this podcast. That is so beautiful. That is, uh, first of all, I, I did not know that, but I really would say that there's a lot of wisdom in elements of Judaism that I think are so universal without proselytizing, right? Without trying to impose on other people sure. Jewish beliefs. But the idea that you would wake up in the morning and express gratitude through a prayer of whatever your faith is, is so beautiful. I'm so glad it's come up. Well- and you know what else? It also brings up humility. So, and the humility is, you know, just because we're in the modern day today doesn't mean that there weren't smart people or wisdom or we're the only people who thought of whatever. There's a lot to be learned from wherever you want to find those, those moments of nuggets of wisdom or inspiration or spirituality. You know, if you're open to receiving and to learning, um, you know, there's that sort of, it's gratitude and humility as well. Oh, for sure. And, and look, I also am a big believer in the art of rest, you know, the Sabbath rest. And for anyone whose life is so fast moving during the course of a week, to have the natural slowdown, which I take on Friday late afternoon through Saturday, 
that reset every single week without thinking about it, without it being a choice, is the healthiest way of living. And again, it's not trying to preach or tell people how to live their lives from a religious point of view. It's just a lifestyle point of view. Well, you know, in the news these days, there's a lot about mental health yes. and entrepreneurship. And there, it's, you know, for years and years, the, the perception was, well, you have to be strong. You, you can't show weakness. You can't have vulnerability. And, you know, now there's, there's more and more coming out about taking care of yourself. And what you're describing can, on one hand, be perceived as spiritual. And on the other hand, it could be just taking care of yourself and nourishing yourself and giving your, you the, the resources, the inner resources to be resilient because <laughs> you're going to need that resiliency. Yes. And I, I hope that we start to take the word grind, like out of this world of entrepreneurship, like it, building a great company, a scalable, resource-rich, return-to-investors company, the, the core element of that is not grind, right? It, it's about intelligent business model, work ethic, team culture, all these other ingredients. But the grind is like this myth of something that I really do, Mark, hope goes away. The wind blows warm at a quarter to five. The sky's still dark, but my mind's alive. You lay beside me dreaming of the sea. At least that's what it looks like to me. That's what it looks like to me. That's what it looks like to me. Hey, hey. That's our show. If you like what you heard, spread the word across your social channels. The Real Work, presented by UBS, is a noteworthy original podcast. The executive producer is Kristen Tews. Our show is produced by Todd Manley, and the theme music was created by my dear friend, the great Peter Himmelman. I'm Mark Ackler. Thanks for listening. Well, I would do it. I would sing it the way that I would sing it in the morning. So I would sing it that way. How amazing is that? That two people, right, were talking about exactly the same practice, the same prayer. Kayam.